0: You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 6th of December 2022 on Monocle 24.
1: Latvia takes a Russian television station off the air, a Russian opposition station. The power of the Donald Trump endorsement is tested against the voters of Georgia. And how much would you want to venture into New York City subway armed with cheese on a string and a baseball bat? I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Rebecca Tinsley and Lou Lukens will discuss all the day's big stories and we'll look at a new documentary chronicling a mission to Mars. Stay tuned. All that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller, and I am joined today by Rebecca Tinsley, journalist and founder of Network for Africa, and by Lou Lukens, senior partner at Signum Global and a former US diplomat. Hello to you both. Hello. Hello. Um, we, we will do a little bit of World Cup-related light introductory banter. Are we all delighted for Morocco, who have just turfed Spain out on penalties? Absolutely. Totally. What, what have you both got against Spain?
2: Nothing, but I always like to root for the underdog and... That, that sounds,
1: sounds downright un-American, Lou. <laughs>
3: um, I'm delighted because football means so much in Africa. And, um, you, know, anything, you know, these folks have got enough problems, as it is, and this will just mean a great deal to them. And it puts so many smiles on so many faces.
1: Well, except in Spain, obviously.
3: Yeah, whatever. (laughs) Whatever.
1: (laughs) I I, I am myself mildly concerned that as we broadcast Morocco is in the process of being burned to the ground in the celebrations. Um, But yes, I I think it is is quite an evening for Moroccan football. Um, So congratulations to our many Moroccan listeners and condolences (laughs) to such Spanish ones as we still have left. Um, We will start the show proper with Russia. Now, early in Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Independent Russian broadcaster TV Rain took itself off the air before Russian authorities made the decision for it. TV Rain checked out with a sarcastic broadcast of Swan Lake, a favourite placeholder of Soviet state television at times of crisis, and re-established itself in Latvia. Now, however, TV Rain has had its plugs pulled by Latvia's media regulator, who have accused TV Rain of broadcasting content sympathetic to Moscow, which, if it was the case, would be quite the editorial turnaround – a few weeks ago for The Daily, we spoke to TV Reigns editor in chief, Tian Ziadka. I asked him how different Rains coverage is from Russian state TV.
2: Well, it's like different, the different reality. But our reality is a true reality, and the reality in the broadcasting of Russian state TV is a fake reality. We're not lying, we are showing to our audience what is actually happening there. We have people on the ground, we have experts from Ukraine. We talk to Ukrainian politicians, to Ukrainian uh, political scientists, etc., etc. So we just give our viewers the real picture of this terrible war. And Russian state TV is, unfortunately, is nothing more than propaganda. And they are building the picture of the world for their viewers, the picture which is not existing in reality.
1: Uh, that was the editor-in-chief of TV Rain speaking to me a while back. Um, Lou, first of all, it, it's it's quite hard to know exactly what has gone on here. It, there are reports suggesting that TV Rain weren't as cooperative with the regulator as they might have been, but nevertheless, does it sound like the Latvian regulators might have the wrong end of the stick here, or does Latvia have a case? Well, the the
2: Kremlin spokesperson in the wake of this news announced that this just shows that foreign states are no freer than Russia. And I think what Latvia, regardless of what the reasons were for closing down the station, and you're right, it's a little bit murky what exactly happened. They've given the Russians a great propaganda talking point here to say, look, in the so-called free West, they're also shutting down radio stations or TV stations that they don't agree with. And it's unfortunate. But again, I say that not knowing exactly why they shut it down. Um,
1: Rebecca, Latvia, of course, uh, has what we might understatedly call a history where Russia is concerned. Latvia also has a huge ethnic Russian population, about 25% of the country. Are the regulators and by extension the Latvian government being sensible erring on the side of caution here?
3: They're probably not. But bear this in mind that um, TV rain turned up at an appeal panel, Mm. if not today, yesterday. And they turned up without a translator or an interpreter and insisted on speaking in Russian. Which is now, not, not tremendously
1: this, tactful. This
3: is the arrogance and the colonialism that is symptomatic of the Russian footprint in the Balkans, in uh, uh, the Baltics, in the, the Stans. It was just not very clever. Having said that. I do kind of worry that at some point Putin may treat all of this as a sort of Reichstag fire or a Gulf of Tonkin as a pretext to go in and, you know, rescue uh, the Russian speakers. So it could be an own goal.
1: Uh, Lou, would the sensible way forward therefore be for some other European country with perhaps less of a history with Russia to say to TV, Rain, all right, you can come and set up shop here?
2: Well if they're I mean if they're seen as troublemakers, I'm not sure other Western countries will want them at this point. And and again, if 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 they are in fact sort of pivoting in their reporting style and becoming more of a pro Kremlin, pro Putin outlet, then I don't think any Western European countries will, will, will really want them.
1: There doesn't seem to be that much of a case for saying they are pro-Kremlin or pro-Putin, though. There was a thing where they they showed Crimea on a map as part of Russia, and there was a thing where one of their correspondents subsequently sacked, used the word our in reference to Russian forces. But do either of those sound like license revoking transgressions?
2: No, that I mean... In and of themselves, no, which makes me think there must be something else going on here for the Latvian government to take this action, which,
1: by the way, then sets them up for accusations of censorship. Yeah, uh, Latvia's regulator has suggested there is a a pattern of behavior here, Rebecca, the the line being everybody must follow Latvian laws and respect them.
3: Yeah, quite. But there is something additional um, apart from the map showing Crimea and using the, the word R our army they're mm. also reputed to have been talking about raising money for the army and i think that 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 is a, a red line and I, I don't blame the latvians for being a little annoyed at that
1: and um, is there therefore lou anything we could by, and by we i mean the western world be doing more to encourage support perhaps even fund russian independent media because tv reigns case and it's important to note they i mean it's not like they will be completely um expunged they will continue broadcasting on youtube where i suspect most of well, actually, in fact all of their viewers in russia uh, are watching them via via vpns but should more be done to encourage such independent slash opposition russian media as there is I, yeah, I think it's important that the
2: Russian people get a realistic sense of what's happening in Ukraine and how the war is progressing or not progressing as far as Russia's concerned, really. Um, so I think it is important. And, and, you know, I think Western governments have always um, supported independent, free journalism in, in, for, in previously authoritarian states.
3: Wouldn't it be nice, though, if we had a government here in Britain that was giving the financial support to the BBC world service russian service that it that it surely deserves because you know that the BBC world service all through the cold war did a fantastic job of yeah. of bringing you know our truth to them and it seems to me you know a wonderful form of soft power and utterly stupid to be cutting their budget
1: Well, indeed so. Uh, Let's move along now and look at Lou Lucan's home country, where the concluding chapter of the 2022 midterm elections is occurring. Georgia is voting today in a runoff contest for one of the state's US Senate seats. The incumbent is Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock, a Baptist pastor who made history in 2020, when he became the first black Democrat to be elected to the Senate by a former state of the Confederacy. His Republican opponent today, Herschel Walker, Outstanding college football running back at the University of Georgia, and later enjoyed a respectable career in the NFL. But has frequently given the impression during this campaign that his helmets provided insufficient protection. Um, Lou, we will we will look at the uh, the manifold defects of Herschel Walker as a candidate and arguably a human being. Shortly, but first of all how important is this race to the democrats it would be the difference between having 51 senators and 50 senators plus the vice president
2: well it's very important because the democrats will control the senate either way mm-hmm. but with 51 seats what that does is it gives them control of all the committees so right now in a 50-50 senate the republicans and democrats have a power sharing arrangement by which there are equal numbers of both parties on all the important on all the committees Um, So it's much harder to to push a law or legislation or a nominee for a position out of a committee. With the 51-49 Senate, the Democrats will completely control the committees, will have more people on the committees – And it'll be much easier from a process point of view for them to get things done.
1: A a side note to that, Lou, will it also be important for the Democrats that if they have 51 seats, not 50, uh, Joe Manchin, the Democratic senator from West Virginia, a man who we can charitably say has ideas of his own, might be able to make himself less of a nuisance.
2: Yes. I mean, that's another thing. Exactly. So Joe Manchin was able to... uh, hold up or shape if you want to be charitable a lot of the administration's agenda for the last two years he will lose some of that power uh, by being the 51st vote instead of the 50th vote
1: shape is a very a very very diplomatic way of putting it Lou well done Um, Rebecca not for the first time in very recent American history this does look like one of those races where you would assume or indeed hope um, that the question it, it sort of goes beyond whether or not you agree with the politics of the individual candidates, given that one of the individual candidates is just plain riotously unqualified. And yet, polls are extremely close. Herschel Walker could win this thing.
3: Yes, um, but I don't think that we in Britain should be smug about this because we have... Oh, we can be a little No, we, <laughs> we, we have also, um, you know, exos- we have shown how degenerate uh, our voters are, in that they've preferred a clown, they've preferred to be entertained by someone mm. like Boris, rather than uh, gopher, sensible, boring people. You know, this is, a, uh, you know, we have no grounds to, to feel pleased with ourselves, because this is a country in 2016 that decided why would it want to be part of the most successful trading bloc ever in the history of the world, and and exited. And, you know, we 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 elect people like Boris, like reese mogg um we love people like farage so it is a sign of how degenerate the west is I, I i fear uh that we still want to be entertained that we are so jaded um that that we're not prepared to go for people who may be less exciting um like joe biden uh but actually do a pretty good job uh, there's
1: another element to this as well though i think lou which is i, I i'm i'm I, I definitely take the point that it has afflicted politics outside the United States as well. It's not just that people want an entertainer uh, in politics, and I suppose you could apply that description to Herschel Walker. It's that thing of... it. It's Well, to, to borrow from Randy Newman, it's the he may be a fool, but he's our fool line. Um, I mean, Herschel Walker is politically manifestly unqualified. Uh, if you actually put what is known of his personal life and removed it from the political context and described this person to any Christian American conservative, they would reply, no, he sounds like a completely dreadful man. Um, But because he's the Republican candidate, they'll vote for him anyway.
2: Yes, except he is so manifestly unqualified and and so sort of tortured with his personal history that there are Republicans who are not voting for him in this special election. And I think that's why I think Warnock will win. Herschel Walker will not win this this election today. Uh, But it is because he is such a terrible candidate that many Republicans in Georgia just they won't even hold their nose and vote for him. Um, and they did during the general election a month ago because there were other people on the ballot. They were mm. voting for governor and other offices, but they can't bring themselves to, to wait in line and vote just to pull the, pull the lever for Herschel Walker.
1: The, the obvious rebuke to that, though, Lou, is that Georgia, admittedly one small district of it, is the state which has sent to the House of Representatives Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is a certifiable dingbat.
2: Yes, <laughs> yes, uh but I yes, and I think but the the dynamics are different for the house elections in these very small districts versus the statewide senate races. But yes, a very good point. Um, <laughs> he 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 is not the only Dingbat politician in Georgia.
3: Um But um, Andrew, you're I I sort of felt what you were getting at is a, a broader point mm. uh, about the fact that um even Dingbats can still get the votes mm-hmm. of large numbers of people who don't actually have a class interest in voting for those people because they're still voting on so-called values. And this is where I fear the Democrats may still have a problem, is that they're still failing to reach those people uh, that that Trump was able to reach so effectively in, in 2016.
1: But but to, to, to explore that point further, Lou, the, the... If you think of this as a contest of values, doesn't the fact that Herschel Walker is getting any traction at all here um, suggest that the, the values are being um, trumped, a, a phrase we will come back to, by tribalism? I mean, Raphael Warnock is a literal Baptist preacher.
2: Yes, but I mean, to, to, <laughs> to Rebecca's point, the argument that you would make for as a Republican voter is, if I vote for Herschel Walker, there's more of a chance that conservative judges will end up on the bench mm-hmm. who will shape the laws in a way that, that align with my evangelical beliefs, right? Which, which you don't get with Reverend Warnock.
1: Even if they don't necessarily align with Herschel Walker's uh, known practices. Yeah. Um, Rebecca, one other thing this is a test of, of course, is the enduring electoral appeal or otherwise of former President Donald Trump, who has been uh, so far, at least, an enthusiastic endorser of Herschel Walker. Should Walker lose this thing? I dare say Trump will say that he never met him and maybe he did, but never much cared for him. Um but will this be an important test of this? If Herschel Walker does not get up here, do, do we start to see that kind of inching away from Trump that was perceptible after the midterms accelerating somewhat?
3: There's a lot of folk with egg on their faces because they've predicted uh, the demise of Donald Trump. Oh, and, me, many
1: times yeah. sitting sitting in this chair.
3: <coughs> and i'm I'm not one of them because uh, you know I, I spend three months of every year in the states, uh, and I regard my time there really as a kind of anthropological expedition, <laughs> talking to as many people as possible. and i th- I fear that Trump still has the X factor. He is still capable of reaching people. I also think that there's a lot of fuss about Ron DeSantis Mm. from Florida, um, but I have a feeling that may fade, and I'm interested to hear what the ambassador has to say about that. Because as far as I can see, DeSantis is actually rather dour and charmless and boring. Uh, and the media, I, I just have a feeling that they will coalesce again around Trump because he just is, he makes really good television. Um, and this he, is
1: depressingly true. He is box office.
3: And also, uh, you know, he, he said something outrageous about the, uh, the U.S. Constitution mm-hmm. a couple of days ago. And almost no Republicans actually said anything. They were mute on this subject. In other words, they still fear that they have the base mm. and the donors who are, who are, are, are Trumpites. And, and so they, they are self-censoring. They may be appalled by him. But, you know, if they see him edging up in the polls, we, they're not going to say a word. And just finally on this subject, Lou, what do you think? Do you buy into this
1: idea that DeSantis is the future of the Republican Party and Trump is now the ebbing past?
2: I think Trump is the ebbing past. I'm not sure DeSantis is the future. He certainly is sort of being portrayed as the future right now. But as Rebecca said, he he's actually – he doesn't enjoy being with people. He's very dour and sort of unfriendly. And I think that will eventually come out, I assume – He's the big Republican donor. Some big donors are lining up behind him. He's got endless sources of funding right now if he does decide to run for president, which I think he will. But the the danger is that he runs, and Mike Pence runs, and Pompeo, and Nikki Haley, and a bunch of other people, and they split the anti-Trump vote. And this is what happened in 2016, and Mm -hmm. Trump ends up with a nomination because everyone else sort of takes each other down. (laughs)
1: <laughs> and, we'll, and we'll laugh about this in two years when Herschel Walker is vice president-elect. But uh, let let's...
3: And a final word, if I might, <laughs> and that is my fear that the Democrats are still quite capable of screwing this up, as the Labour Party <laughs> the, the, is in this th- country. That, that is
1: a constant uh, of yeah. American history. Yeah. Uh, let's, let's move along uh, to Sudan. And it is, as traditional a part of the coup d'etat, as the reassuring address to the nation by the solemn officer bedecked in gold braid and flanked by ostentatiously armed troops. The announcement of a transitional government Government and accompanying plans to either introduce or reassert democracy at some often tantalisingly unspecified date. Sudan's army made pretty much this speech on seizing power in 2019, then did agree a sort of power sharing setup, and then seized power again about a year ago. But now Sudan's military has agreed another two year transitional period with civilian leaders. Um, Rebecca, first of all, are we clear on how this is going to work if it works?
3: It's not going to work at all. Um, uh, <laughs> last, I spent. have got another yes, six
1: or so minutes here, Rebecca. Give us um, something. I,
3: uh, <laughs> sp- I spent yesterday evening uh, with um, a whole bunch of Sudanese diaspora uh, who live here in the UK, and they were united in feeling that uh, this this peace agreement isn't isn't worth the paper it's written on I myself have been involved in Sudan issues for the past 17 years mm. since I visited Darfur at the height of the killing in 2004 and I've seen a lot of peace uh, deals come and go and the thing to 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 recognize first of all is the Sudanese military are a bit like uh, the deep state in Turkey or -hmm. or Egypt. The Sudanese military have their tentacles in every bit of the economy. There is just no way that they are going to let go. The other thing about the Sudanese military is that they are past masters at spinning out Every negotiation, mm-hmm. they understand the West, the international community, so well. So they, they drag out these negotiations. And from what I gather from somebody I was talking to last night who was actually one of the negotiators, uh, the Americans reached the point where they just said, oh, for goodness sake, let's get a deal. And the Sudanese were saying, yes, but it's not going to be a very good deal. But understandably, that the Americans wanted to go home for Christmas. And let's be honest, Khartoum is a, is a dump. <laughs> um, you wouldn't want to stay there. So um, the Sudanese, as ever, the military, managed to talk it out. And they've gone for a deal which just is is not going to work partially because there is no mechanism for justice. And mm. the people on the street really do want justice. It isn't just about 100-odd uh, demonstrators having been killed since the, the most recent coup. It's about... Um All of the peripheral regions of Sudan, which are basically black African, against the the Nilotic tribes mm. around Khartoum who are Arab and who self- identify as Arab and Muslim, and who frankly hate the black Africans, and for that reason, they've killed two million uh, in the in the struggle to form South Sudan. They've killed at least half a million in Darfur, but nobody bothers to count because, hey, they're black. Uh, and the violence continues in Darfur, Blue Nile, South Kordofan. This agreement addresses absolutely none of those core issues, about where the power is in Sudan. And it remains in the hands of the military, and it remains in Khartoum.
1: Well, possibly for all those reasons, Lou, the the people in the street, the protesters, the pro-democracy protesters, are so far very much uh, not buying it. But for what it may be worth, and I'm about to ask you what it may be worth, General Abdel Fattah al-Baran has said that the military belongs in the barracks, which is echoing a chant of the protesters and is obviously the case in a functional democracy. But do we think he actually believes that?
2: Well, I mean, Rebecca knows much more about Sudan than I do. But I, I think there's there's many reasons to be skeptical mm. about his statements and about this agreement. And I think we've seen over and over again, not just in Sudan, but across much of Africa. Um, and we were chatting about this just before the show, leaders or coalitions or groups of leaders who just cannot fathom giving up power. Once you get into power, it's very hard. Many people in Africa, many leaders, find it very difficult to give it up.
1: I mean, Rebecca, it's a, it's a huge cultural change within a military that you're asking it to make for better and for worse, to, do, to actually get it to understand that that in a functional state, the military does serve an elected civilian government. It, it's it's quite difficult. Those examples you mention, uh, Turkey and Egypt, and it is that thing that Lou says they they get a taste for being in charge, and it's it's it, it almost starts to seem an affront to their dignity that they they have to give this up to some yahoo in a suit who the people have elected,
3: and their bank accounts. Mm. I mean, you really have to always factor this in with Sudan that they are busy um, smuggling gold to Russia. Uh, They they literally control the economy in Sudan, uh, which is an absolute basket case, of course. You know, sort of 400% inflation, things like that. What was not helpful was that the UK actually invited Burhan to Her Majesty's Funeral, when actually, if we had wanted to put pressure on this guy, we would have been applying a travel ban on him. And we would have been freezing his bank accounts along with other, all the other scoundrels. Um, and as a, a miserable um, appendix to all of this, I would like to make a prediction that I actually think there may be civil war in Sudan between the various rebel factions. Because they are quite as bad as the military that you mentioned, Andrew, in that their egos are enormous, and that they are corrupt, and they're all fighting each other. Um, And I'm afraid I see really quite miserable times ahead. Uh, All that being
1: the case, and just a final thought on this one, uh, Lou, what's your read on why outside powers, very much including your former colleagues at the US State Department, seem quite enthused about this deal? Is it just that they realise or think that this is the only thing going, or are they being somewhat prone to wishful thinking? Probably both.
2: I mean, probably wishful thinking, probably, you know, a a halfway good deal is better than no deal. Uh, Maybe they believe that they can get the deal signed and then continue to apply pressure on the government or or, in the military to to stick by by its terms. I mean, who knows? Or maybe it's wanting to get home for Christmas. (laughs) You know, all of the above.
1: Well, let's return now uh, to the United States where there is exciting news for any daily listeners, or indeed, who knows, daily panellists, contemplating a career change and nurturing a blind, furious loathing of rats. New York City is seeking what it calls a director of rodent mitigation and has had an amount of fun with the advertisement, suggesting that the ideal candidate is, and I quote, highly motivated, somewhat bloodthirsty and possesses, among other attributes, swashbuckling attitude, crafty humor and a general aura of badassery. Rebecca, that sounds like you. Are you tempted? Oh, yes, absolutely.
3: (laughs) The interesting thing is how often in in these situations one turns to Joseph Stalin for inspiration. (laughs) And I take you back to the siege of Leningrad. We we,
1: we can have fun clipping that out of context.
3: Thank you. (laughs) Um, I take you back to the siege of Leningrad when there were vast rats uh, Hmm? feeding on human Um, bodies all over the streets. And what Stalin did, apparently, was that he got every stray cat in Russia and put them on a train, which actually was sent to Leningrad. They opened the doors. The cats, thousands of them ran out, and that was the end of the rats. So... Uh, do you then the...
1: not have a problem with enormous cats?
3: No. <laughs> Who doesn't want a cat? I I really <laughs> think d- d- that d- d- this, this is, thing is solvable. Tra-
1: trains full of dogs and then other trains full of whatever eats dogs and uh, yeah. it mayhem. Um, Lou, what would what would your approach be? I, I volunteer
2: my Yorkshire <laughs> Terrier to <do> good <laughs> rat chasing. Um, well, first of all, I love that they call the job the director of rodent mitigation. When this is, if you look at the advertisements and the statements by the mayor of New York, this is a hundred percent about killing. rat there's a mm. mitigation here. This is this is death and destruction that they're looking uh, well, for.
1: Well, and and I quote further to lead from the front using hands-on techniques to exterminate rodents with authority and efficiency. It rather suggests that they are expecting this person to strangle them personally.
2: The mayor says this will be a moonshot mindset. We this is like putting a man on the moon. We have to be creative about how we do this and how we kill all these rats. Um, so I think it'd be a fantastic job. It pays $150,000, $170,000 a year. hundred and
1: seventy yeah. dollars a year. Yeah. No, I'm for it. What
2: they should do is have... A bounty, too. 170 plus a bonus, $0.10 for every rat you kill.
3: (laughs) I mean, one of the reasons they do have a rat problem is the same reason that we in London have a fox problem. And that is directly related to the rise of fast food and the fact that we just throw out too much fast food. Now, I actually have a mouse problem in my house, not because of fast food, but, you know, because they like our house. And apparently you can get these little high-pitched noise things that you plug in that freak them out. It's like listening, well, how I feel about K-pop or um, (laughs) the Eurovision Song Contest or even Schoenberg. But it can be done with with high-pitched noises. And they would all go to New Jersey. And most people in New York would be happy, you know, to see them all go to New Jersey, wouldn't we all?
1: See, I don't regard foxes as a problem. I, I, I quite like them. I'm always happy when they're in my garden.
3: Well, I get woken by fornicating foxes at two in the morning, uh, prancing fun. around outside my window. So Swings and roundabouts. I'll tell them to go to your house. I mean,
1: but just finally on this, Lou, is is New York kind of, and it's not unheard of for New York, is New York somewhat valorizing itself here and trying to do a sort of thing of saying, like, you think you've got rat problems in your city, we've got better yeah, rat problems <laughs> than you have. This is New York City. Yeah,
2: yeah, no, I'm sure there's some of that. And, you know, Governor, I mean, the mayor, Adams, has, has you know, tried to put his mark on the city and be different from previous mayors. And um, this is all you know, part of a great PR stick for him, I think.
1: Well, it clearly has got people talking about New York City, which obviously people just don't do enough uh, in normal circumstances. Lou Lukens and Rebecca Tinsley, thank you both for joining us. And finally, on tonight's show, in 2003, two rovers were launched to Mars from Cape Canaveral in Florida, in the hope of finding traces of past life on the Red Planet. A new documentary, Goodnight Oppie, tells the story of a mission that lasted 14 years and 47 days. Monocle's Emily Sands spoke to one of the engineers who worked on the NASA program.
4: Each rover has a mission. The end goal here is to answer the question, did life ever exist on Mars?
0: That was Becca Soslin Siegfried, one of the women featured in the new documentary, Goodnight Oppie. It tells the story of Opportunity a rover that on the 7th of July 2003 was launched into space as part of NASA's Mars Exploration Rover program. Oppie was sent to Mars with her twin sister Spirit for a 90-day mission, but Oppie ended up surviving 15 years. The film follows Opportunity's groundbreaking journey on Mars and the remarkable bond forged between a robot and her humans millions of miles away.
4: Spirit Opportunity, when we launched them, We were trying to follow the water because we think that if water exists on a planet or moon or orbiting body then there could potentially have been life there or life there still. That's what we were trying to answer the question for Mars is was there ever water on Mars and was that water drinkable?
0: Becca worked on the Opportunity rover from 2013 to 2015 as a flight director. She became very fascinated by space at a very young age. The documentary focuses on the scientists and engineers who worked on the rovers. There was a
4: class, a rocket class, in my high school, which is really unheard of. Growing up in Fredericksburg, Texas and taking that class, I was one of very, very, very few women in the program. And I think a lot of that has to do with... um, what we see as kids, you know, we, we really look at, uh, when we watch movies really, and we look at pictures and read books. Um, a lot of the the role models that we have there for people who were in the space industry were men and white men at that. And so I never really thought I never saw myself being an engineer because I couldn't see anyone that looks like me. I think it's really important that even today in today's world that we show, showcase the diversity in the space industry. And there is a lot of diversity. I work at, I still work at the Jet Propulsion Lab, um, now on Perseverance. And the diversity that we have, not only across genders and sexualities, but also cultures and ethnicities is, is really great. And it's important that the world see that.
1: We rewrote the history books. The whole project was bound
2: together by that feeling of love. You're loving the people who you operated with, who
1: tended it with you so lovingly for so many years. You, you don't you don't get an adventure like that twice.
4: Spirit and Opportunity are what inspired me to go into the space program. When I was in eighth grade, I saw them land on Mars, and I never thought I was going to get to work on them because they were supposed to only last for 90 days. Um, So by the time I graduated college, the fact that Opportunity was still roving the planet.
0: There was a real sense of connection between the team on Earth as they watched their special rovers that they had manufactured, trialled and tested through endless hours of work finally leave for space.
4: Who I worked with on the mission at that time, we all referred them to as people, as girls, uh, as women. And, And it's so true because these little rovers look so much like people which is really cool, but it's also a necessity that they look like people. They have two eyes, so they have depth perception, like we have two eyes. And they have an arm, so they can touch things and do things. And watching Star Wars growing up or WALL-E, the Disney movie, you know, even in that brief amount of time that you you watching the film, those cute little robots, you really do make a connection with them. So if you can imagine ex- spending many, many years and days of your life uh, building and operating her, her, these rovers and telling them hey opportunity go to this rock and take this picture and then her sending the data back or sometimes she doesn't do what you told her to do and you get frustrated and i mean you really do they do act like people and we end up forming these incredible bonds with them
0: in 2011 spirit Opportunity's twin sister ended her mission After she got stuck in soft sand and expanded her power reserves trying to free herself. In December 2014, NASA reported that Opportunity was suffering from amnesia events in which the rover failed to write data. I
4: led the team to solve Opportunity's memory problem when she was about 12 years old. I was in the test bed for hours and days trying to figure out how we can safely get Opportunity back on the road and getting her roving again with her memory problems and then seeing her do all the science she did after that point, finally finding evidence of, of drinkable water on Mars after all of those memory problems was such an incredible moment in my career, knowing that I had just some small part um, in helping
0: her achieve that. The water isn't there anymore, but the minerals left behind bear an aluminium-rich chemical signature that suggests that they were formed through the interaction with neutral pH water. This was a huge scientific breakthrough to suggest that there could have been forms of life on Mars. On July the 28th, 2014, It was announced that Opportunity, having traversed over 40 kilometres, had broken the record for the longest off-world distance travelled. Opportunity has provided substantial evidence in support of the mission's primary scientific goals.
4: I really think the legacy of Opportunity is bringing together a group of people from all over the world, not just the United States, but from all over the world, bringing us together to answer a question that will help humanity understand our purpose in life and where we're going from here and to to move us forward.
0: Historically, NASA likes to awaken its astronauts up with music, so they decided to give the rovers the same treatment.
4: The engineers always got to pick the wake-up song, so finally letting our lead scientist Steve pick that wake-up song, the last one was probably, it was like the cherry on top of a, a really delicious, amazing
0: cake. in
1: all the old familiar places that was becca soslan siegfried speaking to emily sands Goodnight, oppie is available to stream on amazon prime that is all for this edition of the daily thanks to our panelists today rebecca tinsley and lou Lukens. today's show was produced by lillian Fawcett and researched by emily sands our sound engineer was adam heaton i'm andrew muller here in london the daily is back at the same time tomorrow thanks for listening